Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on October 17, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. One of my all-time favorite superstar Twill guests makes a return visit to the pod today. Wendy Marin is the Edward R. Utley Professor of Health Law at Boston University School of Public Health, Professor in the Center for Health Law, Ethics, and Human Rights, Professor in the Department of Health Law, Policy, and Management, and director of the JDMPH dual degree program at Boston University School of Public Health. She is a prolific scholar whose broad and deep understanding of the U.S. healthcare system is the envy of all of her colleagues. Welcome back, Wendy. Thank you very much, Nick, for that wonderful introduction. It is always a pleasure to be with you and experience your wit and wisdom. Our wit and wisdom is going to be uh, used in, I think, a lightning round today. It's been a while since we've talked, and it's certainly been a while since we've sort of uh, taken a look at the the goings-on in healthcare law and policy around the country. Let's face it, we've, we've been watching uh, videos of hearings, be they from the U.S., or from the Houses of Parliament and haven't really been uh, doing an awful lot with health law and policy uh, lately. So uh, let's change that around. Topic number one is June Medical Services LLC against Gee. This is a Fifth Circuit decision upholding Louisiana's abortion law and it has been granted cert uh, by the Supreme Court. The obvious headline is that this will be the first abortion case argued before the newly constituted Supreme Court. But I think there are some deeper issues that we uh, need to to look at. I guess maybe to start, we should sort of identify the June case as what it is, which is another of these trap law cases that we've seen a lot of, and we've seen a lot of uh, trap laws. Is this different? Or how, how how do you look at the June case and its implications? Well, the June case is pretty much a replica of Whole Woman's Health versus Hellerstedt decided by the Supreme Court in 2016. And therefore, it's a bit of a surprise that the Fifth Circuit decided to uphold that law in Louisiana. And perhaps a bit of a surprise that the Supreme Court decided to take it, although clearly Louisiana was hoping for a different decision when, um, and perhaps able to take advantage of listening by the new Supreme Court justices that are on the court now. But besides the um, particular motivation that might have gone into it, there are sort of three interesting issues about this case that may have contributed to the Supreme Court's taking cert. One is the role of precedent. One is the possibility of factual determinations by appellate courts. And the third is the interpretation of Casey and Whole Women's Health that the Fifth Circuit made. With respect to the precedent issue, one would have expected uh, the Fifth Circuit to have upheld the district court's decision finding the Louisiana law unconstitutional on the basis of the precedent set in Whole Woman's Health since the facts and the laws were essentially the same. It did not. Uh, And that raises the question of the degree to which uh, the Supreme Court will consider uh, the importance of its own precedent in uh, the application to cases at the appellate level. One could worry that perhaps they may want to revisit the degree to which their precedent should stand. That would be troubling, particularly for a court that wants to continue its legacy. On the other hand, there are probably cases coming down the pike in which they might wish to alter a precedent. So exactly how much of a precedent 
a precedent is, is a major issue, I think, in this case. A second issue is how and when, if ever, can an appellate court essentially revisit and re-decide the facts that the trial court has determined. In this case, in the Louisiana case, the Fifth Circuit basically revisited the facts and came to an entirely different conclusion than did the district court, which is pretty remarkable. And there were some fairly strong dissents certainly one dissent in the three-judge court in the Fifth Circuit, as well as dissents in the petition for a rehearing en banc, which was turned down on a very strong split decision. The dissents lay out a number of differences in the facts found by the district court and by the three-judge court in the Fifth Circuit. So the degree to which the Fifth Circuit had a, any prerogative to discount facts found by the district court or reinterpret them, I think is also a major issue. And then finally, on the merits, how one interprets the holding in, in Casey and in Whole Woman's Health is clearly an issue because the three-judge court in a two-to-one decision interpreted Whole Woman's Health rather differently from how it was uh, interpreted by the Supreme Court itself. I mean, essentially, <laughs> the Fifth Circuit Two, three judge court, two out of three justices said that rather than weigh benefits and burdens imposed by the Louisiana law, as the court had done in Whole Woman's Health, it found that the restrictions didn't really impose any undue burden, and therefore it didn't consider whether there were any benefits to the restrictions that were imposed. Again, a rather different interpretation that the Supreme Court may wish to clarify, revise, or possibly reverse. Let's talk a little bit more about the second of those issues, the facts and the record. I recall, I think, from the whole women's health oral argument that there was quite a lot of discussion about whether there was sufficient evidence in the record as to the non-availability of abortions because of the Texas law in that case, right? Yes. And so I, I guess one question goes to what is in the record here and how did was that just avoided by that sort of little feint that you, you sort of discussed in your third issue? Um, and then I guess to remind ourselves of what Justice Breyer wrote in Whole Women's Health, which really did seem to set out a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, neither of these provisions, and he's talking about the Texas law here, which uh, had similar effects as the Louisiana law, neither of these provisions offers medical benefits sufficient to justify the burdens upon access that each imposes. Each places a substantial obstacle in the path of women seeking a pre-viability abortion. Each constitutes an undue burden on abortion access. Well, two out of the three justices on the Fifth Circuit concentrated most of their attention on the admitting privileges and seemed to essentially accuse physicians of not trying hard enough to obtain privileges. That seems to have had little basis in the record, and their, their approach to the facts that the district court found seemed to dismiss the conclusion of the district court uh, on the theory that gee, these, these physicians, if they really wanted to, they could have found privileges. That seems a somewhat implausible conclusion, if anyone is familiar with what it takes to get privileges. Not only there is their concern about uh, physicians who provide abortions, which 
were quite strong, I gather, in the area. But also, why would a hospital offer admitting privileges to someone who doesn't admit patients to the hospital? It doesn't make a lot of sense. On that basis, then, the court said, well, gee, there could have been admitting privileges. You could have done it. And then on the the requirements for standards for clinic facilities, uh, the the majority of the Fifth Circuit three-judge panel, they didn't talk about it in great detail and simply said, oh, it's the same problem. No problem at all. And if there's no, uh, if there really isn't a burden that this imposes, then we don't have to worry about whether or not there are benefits, thereby not weighing the two. So the facts made a difference in supporting their ideas about what the test should be. That was pretty incomprehensible. So I guess we're going to have plenty of opportunity to talk about this case uh, after its uh, decision. Uh, before we leave this subject area, however, uh, sort of a broader question. It, it struck me as being somewhat surprising that the first abortion case this newly constituted court would see would be another trap law case. Uh, because... Uh, those, those strike me as being sort of whack-a-mole problem cases because the states can continue to come up with new obstacles. I thought the first real abortion fight we'd see in the newly constituted court would be maybe about viability as technology continues to advance the survival of the pre-viable fetus. Well, one could argue that in taking this this case, we could put an end to the whack-a-mole of trap law cases. After all, the Fifth Circuit essentially upheld the trap law and thereby allowed it to take effect. When, of course, you have in the prior whole woman's health case, finding that those laws could not take effect. And in that sense, the Supreme, if the Supreme Court decided that the Louisiana law was not constitutional because it did not meet the whole woman's health standards, uh, then it could put an end to some of this litigation and be done with it. If it upheld it or refused to take it, it would leave that law in effect. And that, I think, would provide a lot of consternation around the country with laws okay here and not okay there. Yeah, I think that's right. I guess we, we should also um, tip our hats towards the Fifth Circuit because they're not exactly surprising us at the moment with what they're doing. And uh, we wait with uh, bated breath as to what they're going to do with the Texas against U.S. case, uh, the judgment in which I had expected to see by now. Yes, I'm quite curious as to what the discussions are going going on behind those closed doors. Let's just hope that a lot of it involves severability. Oi. All right. So topic number two, Medicaid work requirements and what's going on there. Uh, For background listeners, as you probably know, uh, this all goes back to the NFIB case and the Supreme Court saying that the enhanced Medicaid contribution was optional in the states. And then uh, you got uh, the Obama administration dangling uh, Section 1115 waivers in front of red or red states to try and encourage them to expand Medicaid. Uh, And then the Trump administration has taken that further by allowing not just skin in the game type of modifications or waivers, but also work requirements or or related and related administrative requirements. You see sort of the tension here between, you know, viewing as so many of us and so eloquently put by, for example, your your colleague Nicole Huberfeld about uh, Medicaid. Uh, being insurance, and that's it, in contrast to sort of the, the welfare frame of Medicaid. 
Um, and so states sort of going for these work, work requirements and so on uh, take the approach or seem to take the approach that what they're trying to do is to make Medicaid more efficient and to align it with TANF and SNAP. And that uh, the idea is that work requirements will improve the health of Medicaid recipients and help them uh, exit poverty. Of course, the, the evidence suggests that the TANF and SNAP changes brought in by the Clinton administration had have had almost no impact on employment or reductions in poverty. But most of, in fact, all of the uh, the programs that uh, have um, uh, launched, or at least three of the four programs that have launched, Indiana's has only uh, recently been launched. And although suit has been filed in the D.C. Uh, District Court, that case hasn't been uh, decided yet. But both Kentucky and Arkansas, or, um, New Hampshire, have all been enjoined by uh, Judge Boasberg uh, in the D.C. Circuit, who has got increasingly annoyed, I think, with CMS and the states by just uh, uh, bringing back the same case over and over again. And sort of his sort of core feeling was, quote, the overriding shortcomings in the CMS decisions was its failure to adequately consider the requirements effects on Medicaid coverage, despite conceding that providing medical care to the needy is Medicaid's core objective, HHS didn't offer offer any estimates of coverage loss or grapple uh, with comments in the record projecting that the proposal would lead to a substantial number of residents to be uh, disenrolled. Uh, what's your current take on, on Medicaid work requirements? Well, I think you're absolutely right that um, CMS is looking to turn Medicaid into something more like TANF, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. And it's also obviously attempting to reduce federal and state spending on Medicaid. But this is not unique to Medicaid. I think the great deal of uh, HHS's uh, approach to many of the policies that it's responsible for is to take a stand that people should be personally responsible for their health and for their health care, and that much of, of what these policies should do is encourage that personal responsibility. Now, of course, the way they encourage it is by removing benefits um, if people are not complying with certain elements. So one of the elements of the statute and the objectives of Medicaid that CMS can have its argument on is that not only is Medicaid designed to furnish medical assistance, which is the key, uh, but the second is that it's furnishing rehabilitation and other services to help families and individuals attain or retain capability for independence or self-care. They've hung their hook, CMS has, on that notion of independence and characterized it as financial independence, and thus work requirements, community service, volunteerism, and the like is designed to encourage beneficiaries in Medicaid to go out and work on the assumption that this will then get them off the rolls and they will be independent and able to work on their own. Of course, in practice, it hasn't worked that way. Uh, it has rarely worked that way. And even the states that applied for uh, the, a waiver to do so, Arkansas, all others, to indicated they knew they would lose people from the rolls. They thought they would lose people from the rolls, or they argued they would lose people from the rolls because th- these individuals would gain work and be covered by health insurance. But we can see from what evidence exists that the kind of work 
that people who have been on Medicaid get is usually employment that does not carry any health insurance. Small employers who would not be obligated or able, even if they were, to provide health coverage. So it is a there is a punitive nature to this. Sarah Rosenbaum and her team have uh, put together some excellent amicus briefs outlining the health effects of the requirements for work. And it's not just the work requirements. It's also the administrative requirements. Having to report, particularly if you don't have a computer, you can't get to the library to report, the website for the health department doesn't function well, you don't get credit, you're thrown off the rolls, even though you have been working and complying in every respect. Lots of details details about how these requirements function make it incredibly difficult for people who compl- to comply even if they are in fact complying. So I think there are uh, several false premises here, aren't there? I mean, the first is that Medicaid adults are not working when in fact most are employed, but as you say, in, in low-paying jobs. The second is that rather than work improving health and well-being, in fact, health seems to make it much more likely that persons will seek work. So it's the sort of the reverse of of this concept. That's exactly right. And third, many Medicaid persons live in areas with high unemployment and few jobs or they lack the education or credentialing to qualify for employment. So it all seems kind of backwards uh, to me. You have it exactly right. And CMS has it exactly backwards. It's not just opinion here. I think the data is not too friendly to CMS either. Um, The study of Indiana's HIP 2.0 program, that's before the latest work requirement waiver. Uh, showed that enrollees were confused about the changes uh, and couldn't handle the administrative barriers. And then the study, uh, uh, not a study, it's fact, it's data from the state that over 18,000 persons lost their health insurance for failing to meet the Arkansas uh, work and work requirements. And that was before the full phasing of the program. So uh, there seems little doubt that it has the effect of disenrolling large numbers of persons. And that seems not to be an unintended consequence. Yes. And just this month, a report from the Government Accountability Office found that administering these work rules costs hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, These are costs that nobody considered, at least well, uh, before they were imposed. And I think you have it right. There seem to be very different views of what people deserve in the country. And those people who are working but without health insurance can be viewed as in need of assistance or as a drain on the system. And I fear that CMS is approaching the use of their assistance funds as being a kind of charity that we would only reserve for the deserving poor, as many in days gone by might have said, that these people should be responsible for themselves. And if they can't take care of themselves and earn their money, then they don't deserve help. Whereas most people in the health field are concerned about the lives and health of our population and want to make sure that they're properly taken care of. And of course, once someone is healthy, they can go to work. And I guess from a public health perspective, and we'll we'll no doubt uh, come back to this uh, with another topic later, um, there is this overall sort of health of the herd concept, isn't it? And that every person who is on Medicaid, who, who continues to get Medicaid, who is healthy, becomes healthier, is going to lead to overall better health for us all. Well, not only better health, but also better civic participation. 
there are some studies that show that people who are on Medicaid are, discover that it's worthwhile to vote because they are now well enough to participate in civic life, which itself, I think, should be encouraging. All right. So a, a third topic, but but a related one, your, um, your discussion of the deserving poor, uh, of course, led to an immediate flashback to the uh, Elizabethan poor laws. Uh, and, and this next topic also involves a, a flashback. Uh, in this case, a flashback to um, Speaker Paul Ryan, who has uh, departed the House, um, and with him, I thought, had gone the, um, the Medicaid block grant uh, program that he'd been promoting, uh, particularly uh, during uh, repeal and replace. That seemed to be his target, whereas others in the GOP were targeting um, other pieces of the Affordable Care Act. So recently, Tennessee has applied for a, a waiver of its Medicaid program to convert its Medicaid program to a block grant. How would this work? What would be the effects here. You can't blame states for trying to limit how much money they're spending. Uh That's fair. However, (laughs) that's not Medicaid's purpose. And block grants obviously serve the purpose of limiting what a state has to spend. So that's, you know what you're doing and you know how you can spend your money. But it also means that essentially you will have to limit the number of enrollees or the services that you provide. And that's the sort of inevitable effect of a block grant, particularly as it grows over time. And this means probably a great deal of constriction of services or eligibility levels for uh, more poor people who are not elderly, frail, and disabled. As you point out, most of the populations um, who, for whom most money is spent in Medicaid are the elderly and disabled. And no legislature is going to throw grandma and grandpa out of the nursing home. And that population is growing, which squeezes the amount of money left for poor families and their children who are younger. Do you think there's political viability for a block grant? Or is, I mean... Medicare is sort of pretty much on the same third rail as uh, Social Security, but uh, Medicaid never seems to have had quite that same sort of cultural, political protection about it. No, it hasn't. And to the extent that people consider it to be a welfare program, it has had some kind of stigma. What I find actually interesting is how much support there has been until we got to the ACA Medicaid expansion. How much support tends to really revolve around the need for care for the elderly and disabled. But I, I think the in in Tennessee, there does not seem to be a lot of public support. I was reading about several public hearings in Memphis, Shelby County, of course, uh, where there was a great deal of opposition thrown at officials who were explaining the program. They, they knew what was likely to happen, and they knew what populations it would hit. So, for example, I believe that the eligibility level for the program in Tennessee would be 95% of the poverty level, which is about $20,000 for a family of three. So if that's the case, imagine how poor you would have to be to qualify 
And that is likely to be ratcheted down as the money over time gets ratcheted down. As the population of elderly disabled using the money increases, it can't look good from the health of the population's point of view. All right. Topic four, uh, the opioid litigation, um, which I've been following quite closely and uh, writing about. Um, it, it seems almost foolhardy to give any kind of update because uh, tomorrow something else will happen. But if you've been trying to keep up with the litigation, both in the federal court in Cleveland and also in the state courts, uh, here are a few of the latest developments and perhaps some sense that maybe this is the beginning of the end. Uh, first of all, of course, uh, since we last discussed the opioid litigation on the pod, uh, we've had the Purdue bankruptcy filing um, uh, and perhaps more saliently, the objections to that filing by a large number of states. Um, that sort of uh, process has become even more controversial, I think, since the bankruptcy judge, Judge Drain, has extended the stay of actions to cover the Sackler family who own a big chunk of Purdue or owned a big chunk of Purdue. But the Sackler family has not filed for bankruptcy protection. So I think that's that's been the first sort of real sort of um, uh, interesting uh, point in uh, how this is going. Uh, secondly, uh, the bellwether, the first bellwether trial in the multi-district litigation is to start in Ohio on October 21st. Um, but interestingly, most of the manufacturers have already bailed out of that bellwether trial by settling with the county. Uh, and there's only one manufacturer, I think, Teva, uh, who's a relatively small generic player, uh, who's left in along with the distributors. Uh, third, the Sixth Circuit uh, ruled against the Ohio Attorney General's claim that uh, litigation against the opioid makers was more appropriately handled by state attorneys general than local governments. And I think that little piece of, uh, uh, of uh, litigation there tells us so much about what the end game might look like, because this is no longer really about the liability of the drug makers over distributors. Rather, the fight now is who gets the spoils. Is it going to be the states through their attorneys general who may do something with them, like give it to a university medical school? or maybe it just pop it into general revenue? Or is it going to be these 2,000 cities, counties, tribal nations uh, who uh, filed suit in the multi-district, in the district courts, which then got consolidated in Cleveland? So that's the, the question of who get the spoils. And maybe we can uh, talk about the tobacco settlement comparisons a little bit in a moment. Uh, fourth, uh, attorneys generals have wanted a delay because they're actually trying to reach a settlement. Uh, and uh, that was denied. But now there's breaking news that the major drug manufacturers and distributors are proposing a deal uh, uh, worth a combined $50 billion to resolve most of the nationwide litigation, which seems like a very small number compared to most of the estimates. And the fifth piece of, of data just out, we got a, uh, boy, the, boy, the websites that I visit, the Society of Actuaries uh, uh, just released an estimate of the opioid epidemic cost to the U.S. economy from 2015 to 2018 as being $631 billion. So do any of, the, any of those pieces of the opioid litigation interest you, or are you just hoping that this will all end 
and at least some money might go to public health or at least some money might go to social determinants of health. I would certainly hope that some money would go to those that have been devastated by this uh, by this epidemic. And it, it, I think the comparison to the tobacco litigation is apt because, of course, the smokers never got a nickel. And much of the money that was supposed to be provided for uh, smoking cessation and education uh, was used, but not, not a lot. And then some, uh, some states just sort of sold their income stream for immediate cash to cover deficits in the country. So if there were to be a settlement, it would, I hope, include something to take care of people. And to be honest, uh, I would like to see this taken care of so we can really focus on how, how to cope. Uh, not all the issues dealing with opioids have to do with the, you know, scheduled drugs. A lot of them have to do with Schedule One unlawful drugs. And that's a concern that really is not part of this discussion in the litigation. We really need to look at treatment programs and availability. And that's where I think a lot of the money should go. Right, right. They're litigating something that really pretty much came to an end about 2013, 2014, uh, when we saw the the switch over from prescription drugs to, as you say, Schedule 1 uh, heroin, uh, but also to uh, synthetic uh, opioids such as fentanyl. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, I'm no doubt we'll... Uh, uh, come back to that. All right, number five, uh, the public charge. Um, that went kind of quiet after the initial um, announcement um, that the uh, there was going to be still further sort of leveraging of um, immigration with anti-welfare, anti-benefit sentiments, or then if you take the other position that this is, you know, taking care of the public purse. Uh, But in August 2019, we got the final rule enabling the federal government to um, uh, uh, carry out the provisions of U.S. immigration law related to the public charge ground of inadmissibility uh, and how that will work. Um, uh, October 11th, uh, judges in three separate cases before U.S. district courts in New York, California, and Washington, Washington State, uh, enjoined the DHS from implementing and enforcing the final rule. Um, Judge George Daniels of the Southern District of New York, quote, the rule is simply a new agency policy of exclusion in search of a justification. It is repugnant to the American dream of the opportunity for prosperity and success through hard work and upward mobility. Immigrants have always come to this country seeking a better life for themselves and their posterity with or without help most succeed and finding that there was no legal basis and therefore the rule was arbitrary and capricious and so on. Um, Again, there are um, framing issues here um, and also potential public health consequences going to um, you know the the the, uh, uh, the health of the herd, uh, and also as um, our friend Wendy Palmet has um, pointed out in her work, um, uh, the um, uh, the failure to take into account uh, that uh, uh, those who come to this country, uh, immigrants, including those who are not documented, um, frequently come in very good health, better health than many who are here. Well, it's another example of the uh, approach, ideology, perspective 
perspective, call it whatever you will, that every person should be responsible for himself and there should be no uh, assistance from government, or at least very little. I wonder how many of our existing citizens could remain citizens if we didn't allow citizenship for anyone who took any kind of public assistance. Many people who vote against uh, perhaps taking in immigrants or expanding Medicaid have already received quite a few benefits from government themselves in one form or another. And if you are looking at the health of the population, surely allowing someone who comes into the country to have some coverage for Medicaid, for example, or some short-term assistance uh, would be actually beneficial Mm -hmm. because perhaps they would be able to take care of some perhaps minor problem or have some preventive care perhaps prenatal care, um, and instead of having to suffer something far more severe over time because of the lack of prevention, that would be far more expensive to take care of and far more burdensome for the person themselves. So it's, it's, it's counterproductive in terms of health and could be in terms of finances as well. So the public charge rule, of course, goes to immigration. Um, last week, the White House issued a proclamation saying it would deny visas to people coming in who would financially burden um, the uh, U.S. healthcare system, demanding that foreign nationals prove they have insurance or are affluent enough to cover their own health care costs before entering the United States. So I think I... I um, I tweeted that this looked like support for the individual mandate, but but only for non-Caucasians. <laughs> Uh, yes. Well, we've had uh, many people come to this country for medical care that have been able to pay their own way. But this is, I don't even know what to say about this. <laughs> it's just, it's just silly. Rather than try and debate this issue, because clearly it is one of those tribal issues. And currently we have an administration that is pushing to extremes we've never seen before. So maybe rather than just trying to litigate that, I I guess my question to wrap up this issue would be what's going to be the long-term impact of these kinds of rules on our population, on our culture, and on our healthcare? That's a really important question because as long as the issue is framed in terms of abstract uh, powers of government, then there is an expansive uh, uh, stretch of government power. And we ignore the actual effects on human beings. And our law doesn't actually take effect. I mean, sorry, our law doesn't accommodate the effects on human beings very comfortably within a principled structure. And I worry that indeed this this could continue to the point where we have principles that are so abstract and neutral that they leave much of the population at sea, ill, poor, and unable to function in the country. All right. Keeping on going down the list and speeding up a little bit. Safe injection sites. The uh, huge news from uh, Philadelphia where in a safe house against the U.S., a federal judge in Philadelphia um, uh, gave a victory to Safe House, which is the country's first proposed 
let's say, overground supervised injection site. They gave him a big win um, in that the judge ruled that the proposed SIF did not violate federal drug laws, as the Department of Justice had argued, specifically what's called the crack house statute. Judge McHugh, in his opinion, said, quote, what Safehouse proposes is far closer to the harm reduction strategies expressly endorsed by Congress than the dangerous conduct the crack house statute seeks to prohibit. Uh, is this a major breakthrough, do you think, or just a blip that we'll look back on as, as just one victory for harm reduction during a time when uh, criminalization uh, tends to uh, overcome uh, most such policies? Uh, well, that's a good question. Certainly, it's been referred to uh, in other states that are considering legislation to permit uh, safe injection sites, and proponents are pointing at the decision to say, see, look, we now have evidence. We now have been thinking about this for 30 years. Certainly, we should be able to proceed in a, in a safe way and not let our population die. It may, it may have some effect. Clearly, the Department of Justice or its leadership is not happy. Um, Deputy Attorney General Rosen has said that there will be an immediate appeal. Meanwhile, the Assistant U.S. Attorney for Pennsylvania has written to Safe House threatening to go after drug users who patronize any facility they open. Uh, so uh, uh, the feds don't seem to be uh, giving up. Well, they weren't They weren't likely to, but it may be that the population will, will push them. It has taken a very long time. And of course, it has taken the fact that many of these drug concerns affect white people now. And when there was less sympathy for so-called, you see why they call it crack house legislation, because they thought mistakenly that the drug problem was concentrated among African-American populations. False, but effective to kind of isolate the issue and not address it. Now I think we're at least paying attention. All right, next topic. And this is a throwback, Wendy, to pods of old when we have uh, discussed uh, this issue. Uh, CMS uh, just recently released an informational bulletin. They were announcing the opportunity for 10 states uh, to apply to participate in a wellness program demonstration project uh, for their individual market policies, uh, giving states and insurers new flexibility to design and offer wellness programs for those in individual market health plans that provide people, and I am quoting, with direct incentives to make healthier choices and to achieve better health, out health outcomes. So my question to you is this, A, another attack on the ACA exchanges, B, a continuation of this bizarre journey into wellness, which of course shifts costs more than it improves health, or C, both? Oh, both. Um, <laughs> definitely both. But another example of the assumption at some levels that poor people are not able to take care of themselves, don't know how to eat, don't know how to exercise, and and simply need to be goaded into doing the right thing. This, is, this attitude has a long history, which relates not simply to the poor, but also to immigrants, uh, people of color uh, who were always accused of being dirty, um, intoxicated, um, and carrying disease. Really classic, classic 
recurrence of these kinds of characteristics that were attributed only to the poor in a way to distance ourselves. So it's a very interesting question why, if the government could do this to uh, people in a healthcare program, why couldn't it do it to the public at large? Mm. In, in other words, if, if, if it's good, arguably, for your health to do whatever, eat your broccoli. I was just going right? to say, eat your broccoli. I, I knew you were going there. <laughs> <laughs> and, and exercise and, and the like. Well, it's good for someone who is in Medicaid. It should be good for everybody else, which is why they're offering it on, you know, for private insurance. Private insurance does it too. The sad truth is it doesn't really seem to matter. Uh, certainly not when you're being penalized for not doing it. And the people that supplies to, if you're being financially penalized, uh, you know, it, it, you can't afford to do much else. It's simply making the poor people poorer without necessarily providing any benefit to their health or longevity. And more administrative requirements. Oh, ab- absolutely. I think we finally, in this in this space, uh, recognize that there's a, what, $9 billion wellness industry in the country that is trying desperately to show that it matters. And it no longer offers a return on investment because they can't quite make that claim. Uh, and so it should be either to improve the health of your employees, which it doesn't seem to do a whole lot there, certainly not with respect to preventing illness, although it, there are programs that are pretty good at disease management. Uh, but that's not what employers want necessarily. They want to prevent illness. It, it, I understand it. Everyone wants, to, again, save money at the expense of the poorest populations. That seems to be the theme. All right. Final topic. Uh, surprise billing. So I think every now and again, even when we are in full on tribalism and everything in sort of health care, health policy seems to be just an ongoing grudge match, cage fighting, if you like. Uh, Every now and again, you see something out there that you go, surely we could all agree on this, you know? And I thought that sort of the last time that came up was around the time of repeal and replace when we had the Alexander Murray proposal for market stabilization, you know, which everyone seemed to think was a good idea. But of course, it, it dies. So this year's version, I think, of that, and it came out of the same committee, somewhat ironically, is surprise billing. How could anyone not think it's a great idea to do something about surprise billing, uh, obscene out-of-network costs, people who checked every single box on their policy, made sure that they were in-network, etc., etc., and who knew that the helicopter sent to pick up the injured kid would be out of network. You know, these kinds of things. And then we see this sort of backlash and a lot of ads being pushed uh, against the medical bill legislation being um, uh, considered. Um, And no one really knew where this sort of dark money was coming from until fairly recently when we found out that most of it was coming, surprise, from private equity-backed companies that own physician practice practices and staff emergency rooms out of network. Is this dead as an issue or or is there still some life here, do you think? That's hard to predict. Certainly the public is very concerned about it and legitimately so when you get hit with a bill that you never expected. On the other hand, uh, we have a, we've structured a system in which uh, 
competition is encouraged and providers should not necessarily be all part of the same system. There should be free market difference, patient choice and all that. Of course, patients aren't really choosing. So they're in a system in which they're supposed to choose, but they don't know what they're choosing from because they think they've got something in network. I do understand why there's opposition, not necessarily from the investor groups, but from some physicians who think that the solution will be to impose network fees on groups of physicians who didn't want to deal with that insurer at that price. And they're concerned, of course, that they won't um, be paid what they consider to be a fair income. So people sometimes listen to their doctors when their doctors say, don't vote for this because you'll you know, you'll lose your doctors. They won't take care of you anymore. All right. Well, uh, let me finish with just one last sort of general question. Um, the other day I tweeted some sort of maybe semi, semi-rational way of understanding something that was being proposed or the administration was uh, doing. And our friend and your colleague, Nikki Huberfeld, that's your second shout out of the day, Nikki, call me, replied that there was no logic to be found in what she characterized as nihilistic policymaking. You're a cheerful person. Cheer me up and tell me, tell me there's a more comforting way of looking at things at the moment. You got me on the wrong day, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) I've been reading about, uh, you know, we're looking at the Ninth Circuit finding that the sort of reincarnation of Reagan's original Mexico City rule, which has been up and down depending on administration, has upheld the rules at Title X requiring Planned Parenthood and other reproductive health centers um, to limit what they can say to patients and uh, to have separate facilities, effectively shutting them down. We have the Supreme Court deciding that uh, they can't find a, a standard to determine whether or not um, excessive partisanship can be an unconstitutional form of gerrymandering. Although, I will say, perhaps on the bright side, that are, there are some states that are deciding these gerrymandering issues under their own constitution and developing more independent ways to define districts without trying to have one party in power with a small percentage of the vote. And just as we're seeing some states passing their own legislation to try and sort of patch together um, sort of responses to the sabotage of the ACA. So, all right, so you failed me somewhat, but there is some glimmer of comfort in that. And also, as healthcare lawyers, we have to feel we're in better shape than environmental people. Oh, well, yes. All right. So that was great fun. Always so much fun to have you on the show, Wendy. Thank you Uh, so much. So Professor Mariner is on Twitter. You can find her at Wendy Mariner. Thanks for joining us. Show notes are at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week.